Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you because it is you who have convened us here this morning. Open up our minds, open up our hearts for the message that you would have us receive from your scripture. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit that as we leave this place, we will be encouraged and empowered to be agents of transformation, reclaiming this world for Christ. For it is in his name that we pray, and God's people say, amen. Before we start with uh, today's message, I'd like to just share one story, one example of those 5,000 church planners that are out there. And I'm going to ask my friends at the slides to show the picture of Antonio. Antonio lives in Venezuela, and if you know anything about Venezuela, Venezuela is a country that has suffered so much under terrible leadership, under uh, a regime of corruption, under a place where it is hard to find medication, where electricity is gone. For it's, it's a beautiful country, but the people are suffering, and they're leaving in droves. They're coming to the United States. They're going to Mexico. They're going to their neighboring country of, Colum of Colombia. Many are going to Ecuador. I have friends who have dispersed to so many places. But even in the middle of that darkness and that situation, the hope of the gospel is going forth. And Antonio is a partner of one of over 150 partners that we have around the world. It's the Church of God. It is a denomination that is planting churches all over Latin America. They asked us actually to help them plant over 2,000 churches in South America. Antonio is one that came and said, I would like to be one of those that is willing to go to the next place and plant a church. There is a need in Aguas Negras, which means Black Waters community. And he wanted to go. The people were wondering, though, would he be able to do it? Because Antonio is, is getting advanced in age, and his eyes are going blind. So he has what in Spanish we call un impedimento, uh, an impediment for, for uh, being able to move around easily. How is he going to go through the modular training, the biblical training, and, and go and plant a church? How is he going to do it? But they said, let's make an exception and allow Antonio to do it. He really wants to do this work. And it seems like the Spirit could use this man, even with his limitations, to go and plant a church. So Antonio went and started making visits. He started taking the modular training once a month, gathering, learning how to do evangelism, learning how to do discipleship, how to lead small groups, how to lead inductive Bible study, how to train leaders so that they would have their own Bible studies, and then how to gather those Bible studies into a worshiping community that loves God and loves their neighbors in whatever situation they might find themselves. And so Antonio started doing that. If we look at the next slide, you will see one of the people that he met in his visits. The Lord has a way of uniting resource and need just at the right time in what we might call a divine appointment. Soleini had a really uh, difficult life in poverty and in difficult situations, probably like most of us, looking for love and meaning in our lives. Eventually got pregnant had a child, and what looked like was going to be a difficult life became even more difficult when they realized that the child was born without hands and without 
child's name is Hyver. So Lainey and Hyver were now looking at a really up steep hill in life with a lot of despair. But Antonio came just at the right time as the Lord would have it, and he shared with her, there is a man that can love you truly. There is a man who can give you hope, and his name is Jesus Christ. If you would accept him as Lord and Savior, there is hope for you and for Hyber. And you can also be part of a new community. You can have a new identity. Whatever people have called you in the past, they will now call you a child of God. Because you are created by God to serve God and to be for God. And you can have a new identity in him. Would you accept him as Lord and Savior? And she started attending Bible studies and accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior of her life. One of my favorite pictures of the thousands of pictures that multiplication re receives from Africa, Asia, and all over the place is the following picture. I want to show you something. Not only does she have a new identity as a child of God, forgiven and redeemed with hope, she is now also part of a new community. This is a church. This is a church. Maybe they don't have the incredible, beautiful facilities that we have here. This is wonderful. But under a mango tree, men and women, young and old, are meeting, studying the Word of God. The same Word of God that Martin Luther defended when he spoke about the 95 Thesis and when we later got the five solas. That Word and the same Holy Spirit is transforming this community and showing to an unbelieving world what it's like when Jesus is king. Praise the Lord for people like Antonio that even with limitations and what people might think is an impediment, meets up with another lady who has a child who's going to have certain impediments, but that woman does not have to raise that child alone. She has the hope of a whole community who will walk with her. This is what wakes me up in the morning and gets me excited about being part of the kingdom work. I can only do a little bit. Maybe you feel like you can only do a little bit, but together we can support people like them who are going out and bringing the hope of the gospel. Is there one person here who can say amen? amen. Praise the Lord. One of the, and there's, I think, one more picture that I'll just share with you. That's three weeks ago in Wittenberg, in front of the Reformation door, uh, that so famous of the 95 thesis. Okay, let us now turn to the Word of God. I've got good news for you and bad news for you. The good news is that it's only one verse. <laughs> the bad news is you could preach five sermons from that one verse. <laughs> And you can see it on the screen, and maybe we can read it all uh, together. If we can put the passage from Philippians 3.20, let's read together. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Usually when we uh, present the Word of God, it's always good to present a little bit of the historical context and the literary context so that we can understand what does this passage mean to the original hearers, and then go to the application, what could that mean for us here in Chowchilla in 2021?
the title of the message is, Where is Your Passport? Imagine with me, Paul, sitting in house arrest, or maybe in a jail, the scholars debate the details of it, and he's writing a letter to what most scholars would agree is his favorite church, the church in Philippi. And he's writing this letter of love, a letter that later would be also known as the book of joy, because even though he might be in shackles or certainly in house arrest, not being able to move too much out, out of that area because he's under surveillance and under guard by the Roman soldiers, he is writing this letter of love to the people that he helped bring to Christ when he was preaching the gospel, evangelizing, discipling, and yes, planting churches. You see, sometimes we forget that before we had the Bible, the whole scripture with the Old and the New Testament, people were going off just the Old Testament, and some of the letters had not been written yet, but the gospel was already going forth. I remember when I first had this thought, or somebody mentioned it, or I read it in a book, and I said, it's incredible that the very word of God comes to us from a church planting context. You see, the Apostle Paul, the author of Philippians, of this beautiful letter, he wasn't always a promoter of the gospel. He was a persecutor of the gospel. He hated Christians. He was a hater of the cross, a hater of Christ, and a hater of those who followed him. But one day, you know the story well because we have three accounts of it in the book of Acts, where it tells us that Paul on the road to Damascus, persecuting Christians, throwing them in jail, being there when people like Stephen were stoned and, and saying this was a good thing. He has an encounter with the living God. And Jesus himself says to him and asks him a question. Do you remember what it is? He says, Saul, which was his name before Paul. Saul, why do you persecute me? He could have said, wait a minute, I am not persecuting you. I'm persecuting these people who say that they follow these things and they have this hope in the resurrected one and ah, this, this strange stuff, it goes against the legalism of Judaism and we're going to... But Jesus takes it personally when somebody persecutes the church because he is the head, we are the body. And when you persecute the body, you are insulting the head Jesus says to him, why do you persecute me? That is the identification of Christ with his church. Now, Paul has his conversion. Some people say it was right there. Some people say it was this three days of process when, when, when a man of God prays for him. It says in the New Testament, something like scales fell off his eyes. And that is the new vision where now Paul can see with spiritual eyes what God intends for his life. It's not going to be an easy one. It's not going to be a comfortable one. But he is going to become an apostle of Christ to the Gentiles. He is going to go to the nations, and he's going to preach the gospel. And his number one methodology in terms of strategy is to go from town to town and key city to key city doing what? Planting new 
churches because it is the single most biblical and strategic thing you can do for the expanse of the gospel. You see, there are many, many types of missions you can do. Children's ministry, women's ministry, prison ministry. The Lord puts in all of us different passions and different gifts, and it's all good. It's for the kingdom. But if when you leave and the dollars leave, if you haven't left their biblically trained leaders who are committed to establishing a church and communicating the faith of Jesus into the community, it, it won't be sustainable. We need local churches who will then do visiting the orphans, helping the widows, helping the prisoners, uh, calling the government to justice, doing all the things, evangelizing, discipling, preaching for repentance, talking about Jesus and what he did on the cross. So Paul starts doing this all over Asia Minor. And he starts establishing new communities of faith. And you know, when you start a community of faith, eventually you have two or three who are gathered, then later six, and then 10, and then 20, and then 30. And when you get that group of people going, there's a saying, I don't know if you've heard it, where two or three are gathered, there will be conflict. Have you heard that? I know that doesn't happen in Chowchilla, but in other places it happens. <laughs> and so when those conflicts arise, Paul writes some letters. Hey, the rich and the poor, this is how you should get along. Hey, you, how are you going to take care of the widows and the orphans? Here's some things. Hey, when you take the Lord's Supper, and he starts writing. Hey, what are you going to do with that meat that was sacrificed to idols? And he starts writing these letters, and this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, becomes the epistles of Paul, which are now a great part of the New Testament, the Word of God, inspired by God for us. Incredible. Out of a church planting context where these communities are having situations, we get a big chunk of the Word of God. You see, church planting goes so closely with the Word of God. Now, Paul is planting churches all over what is today present-day Turkey. I had the privilege just before the lockdown to visit the seven churches of Revelation and some of the churches like in Ephesus where Paul had been and preached the gospel and established churches. And so to Ephesus, he writes Ephesians. To Rome, he writes Romans. To Philippi, he writes the book we're looking at today, Philippians. And so this is a little bit of the historical and literary context that gets us to the passage that we are looking at today. Let me share something more with you. Paul wanted to go further into Asia. And it tells us in Acts chapter 16, you cannot understand the book of Philippians without knowing what happened at Philippi, which is all related in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. Paul wanted to go further into Asia, but it says there that the Holy Spirit did not allow him to go further, and that night, God puts a vision in, in, in Paul through a dream, and he sees a Macedonian man calling to him, saying, please come over and help us. Please come over and help us. So in the morning, he tells about his vision to the other disciples, probably uh, Luke, Timothy and Silas, and this band of brothers and evangelists, they cross the Aegean Sea, and they go to, from what is Turkey, Asia Minor, and they go across 
to what is modern-day Greece. Macedonia, there is a country called Macedonia, but this part of Macedonia is what is northeastern Greece. And they get to the city of Philippi. Now, what do we know about Philippi? Philippi had been founded as a city about 400 years before Christ. Philippi gets its name from King Philip, King Philip of Macedon, King Philip II. He's actually more famous because he's the father of Alexander the Great. And because he conquered that area, he gave it his name. It's the city of Philip, Philippi. And you can still go and see the ruins there today. Fast forward from 400 years before Christ to only 42 years before Christ. And you have one of the biggest battles, epic battles that ever happened in, among the Roman armies. A civil war. The C C Julius Caesar had been assassinated. And Brutus and Cassius had one army. And the others who did not support that move were coming, were Anthony and Octavian. And you have this incredible encounter just outside of the city of Philippi. And this is, this is important to understand today's passage. Please, please pay attention to this. The armies battle, and Anthony and Octavian are the victors. Because they had that great victory there, they conferred on the city of Philippi nearby status of imperial and of a royal decree called Ius Italicum. Ius Italicum means that this place, even though it's way over here in Greece, it's as if it were a little piece of the imperial city, Rome. And to have Roman citizenship, boy, that was a big deal. You couldn't just be whipped for any reason. You had to be taken to a court. You had certain rights with properties. You have certain rights in terms of the legal status and the economic status that you had in the society. So when they were given Ius Italicum status, this was a big deal. And we need to understand this if we're going to understand what Paul is going to later write to the Philippians about their citizenship. What I, the main point here is this. The people in Philippi are proud to be Roman citizens. Now, when Paul goes there, usually he would go from city to city, and the first thing he would do in his strategy is look for the synagogue. That's where the Jewish people would be. But to have a synagogue, you needed to have at least 10 Jewish families, 10 households. And there must have not been enough because there was no synagogue in Philippi. So the next best thing he could do is to see if there were at least enough Jews for a place of gathering for prayer. And that they did have. It was by the river that some women were Pray, and something incredible happens there. Paul and his band, they go over to the river. The women are praying, and Paul explains the gospel to these women. And it says in the text in Acts chapter 16, I really encourage you, I give it to you as homework for this week. Somebody read Acts 16. It's a wonderful story. Three amazing things happened there. First, it says God opened Lydia's heart. Lydia was a godly woman. She was a God-fearer. But she did not know the good news. 
the good news that Jesus had incarnated, that God had not stayed in five-star heaven, but had come down and become one of us, the Word made flesh. He put his tabernacle among us. Jesus came. He taught us. He modeled for us. He healed the sick. He preached hope. He preached a message of repentance. And then he himself gave his life, God giving his life for humanity that he loves in grace and mercy. He is crucified, forgiving our sins. But not only forgiving our sins, sometimes we forget the second aspect of it, which is forgiving our sins, but also defeating death. Through death, beating death. And Paul will do all kinds of writing, theological writing about that later in, in several of his epistles. But Jesus did not stay hanging there. We know the story well. Three days later, the tomb is empty. Jesus is raised from the dead. Paul will later write in, to the church in Rome, chapter 10, 10, he will say, if we believe in our heart, right, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, but also believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, these are the two conditions for you to be saved. He's preaching this gospel of repentance and this gospel of love and of hope, and Lydia opens her heart, not something Paul can do, only the Spirit can do that, and her heart is opened, and she receives Christ as Lord and Savior. And she says to them, hey, come to stay in my household. She shows hospitality to them. And she must have had a, quite a household to be able to get this whole band of, of, of evangelists into the home. So the first convert is Lydia. Lydia, what do we know about her? It says that she was a wealthy woman. She was a merchant from Thyatira. We know her as Lydia of Thyatira. She would sell... Purple cloth. And if you know something about what the historians tell us about the first century, purple cloth was the, the, the color of royalty and the color of wealth. If you were somebody, you had something purple. If you're wearing something purple today, you're good. Everybody's looking at each other. Who's got purple? <laughs> so she was a wealthy immigrant woman who had done well. Some scholars point out how interesting that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow him to go further into Asia. But when he crosses over into Europe, what is going to be Paul's first church plant on European soil at the church of Philippi, the very first convert is an Asian woman from Thyatira. I've been to that little town. She had gone over to do business and was doing very well. That's the first convert, an Asian Merchant, immigrant, who had done very well in it. A little while later, he continues to preach in the streets and in the, the town. And it says that there was this girl who had a demon in her who would follow this group of evangelists and say, this is the one who's preaching to you about Jesus, the most holy God, the one that shows the way to salvation. And she kept yelling this, and Paul is moving, and she keeps following. And it says in the text that Paul was annoyed. If you ever get annoyed, there's precedent in Scripture that the apostle Paul was annoyed. <laughs> You're not alone. He was annoyed at that, and he turned, and he finally said to the woman, I command that evil spirit inside of you to depart in the name of Jesus Christ. And that slave girl, 
was freed from the demon that allowed her owners who were enslaving her and using her to profit by the spirit of divination, what today we would call a fortune teller. People want to know what's ahead in my life, what's going to happen to me five years from now. Back then it was the same way. I saw on the way up here somewhere up by the highway a big thing of palm reader. Have you seen that place? There's a place there, some lady's name or something, a palm reader. That, this was this lady way back when she would tell people their future and people would pay. She was slaved in that and her owners were using and abusing her and she was socially uh, marginalized and spiritually oppressed. Both things. Let me say it again. Socially marginalized and spiritually oppressed. But in the powerful name of Jesus, Paul liberates her and she is the second convert that we know about in Acts chapter 16. So first, a wealthy immigrant businesswoman. Second, a slaved, oppressed, marginalized girl who is lifted up out of that situation. We don't know much more detail, but wow, these two people might have come together as part of the new church that Paul had founded. But now we have an issue. Now the story gets thick and the story gets a little bit difficult. Do you remember what happens next? If you want to get somebody ticked off at you, that's maybe a polite way to say it, mess with their income. The owners of the slave girl got ticked off and they said, these guys just ruined our source of income. They dragged him, uh, Paul and Silas, they dragged them into town and they had the people beat him with rods. It even gives us that detail. They beat him to a pulp. They were bleeding probably and in bad shape. And then they told the magistrates, these people are teaching customs that are foreign to us. So they put him into the jail into the center part, and they shackled their feet in stocks. So here they are, probably bleeding, hurting. Who knows if they didn't have some bones broken. It must not have been a pretty picture because they got beaten apparently from what it describes in Acts 16, pretty bad. They're there, and they start singing even in that situation. And it says the other prisoners were listening. They were singing and praising God even in the middle of their song. All of a sudden, God does what only he can do. There's a shaking of the earth, of the foundations of the earth in that area. And an earthquake takes place, and the doors of the prison are open. The shackles are oh, uh, uh, freed up, and now the prisoners are able to get out of their prison. It's incredible. The jailer comes out. Now, you got to know that the jailer in those times was probably because the, the scholars tell us that many Roman soldiers, when they retired, they were given a place, a lot of land or a piece of farmland or a place in the city. So the jailer was probably a retired, uh, tough Roman soldier. That's the most likely scenario. A tough law and order guy that is taking care of the jail. He sees that his people are going to leave. And one of the values in the Roman society is honor. And he's going to lose all his honor. So he takes a sword and he's about to kill himself because he thinks he's lost all his prisoners. He better take his own life before the, the, Romans, the other Romans do it. But then Paul says to him, stop. We're all here. None of us has escaped or left. 
the man comes trembling before him and, and falls before him and says, what must I do to be saved? Perfect question for Paul. And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household shall be saved. And the man is filled with the joy that only the gospel can give. And he and his household come to faith. And I don't know how the details occurred there, but they were baptized. That's what the text tells us. And they're baptized into the family of God. Now, I want you to see the radical nature of the gospel. This is something that you and I cannot cook up. Not even the best sociologists from Harvard or Yale could figure this one out. Only the gospel has this kind of power. An Asian immigrant woman who has done very well in business, a slave girl oppressed and marginalized at the bottom of the heap, she is lifted up by the power of the gospel. And a Roman law and order type guy, these three are brought together into what is the new church of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the power of the gospel. And that is the nascent church in Philippi. Now let's get to our text and to three conclusions. The, conclu the, the text says that when he's later sitting, years later, writing them a love letter, a letter of joy, and telling them some advice, words from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit, this sentence that we read today, but, he says, Remember this, but our citizenship is in heaven. I have a, I brought a little important document. I'll be needing this pretty soon because I'm headed to Ukraine. To, we're working with that case. It's with several partners, but this one is with the Baptist denomination who have hundreds of church planters who are ready to plant churches and they'd like some training. So we're going to be going over there and I'm going to be needing this book. I've used this to go to over 100 countries around the world. And it's an incredible little booklet because in this booklet, there are some words and some symbols and some things that say to different authorities around the world, please let this person in and then let them come back. And when I come to the United States, I can always show my passport and I can get in because this document says that I am a citizen of the United States of America. There are people who would be willing to pay tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to have this document. But I have it just because I was born here. I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan. When I was one, we left for Costa Rica and then Argentina. And I was for 13 years in the Patagonia and in Buenos Aires. But because I was born here, I have a passport that lets me go in and out as a citizen of this country. In the same way that this is so helpful and useful and, and a treasure to me, Roman citizenship was a treasure to those in, in, in Philippi. But the radical thing that Paul is saying to them there and to us here is that as important as this might be and as valuable as this would be, your primary identity when you have bent the knee to Jesus Christ and said, I accept him as Lord and Savior. I repent of my sin. I recognize that I cannot do it in my own strength, but that I will follow Jesus the rest of my life as Lord and Savior. It won't be perfect, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, I will try to glorify God and wait for his return when we will reign forever and ever over a new heaven and a new earth. 
For those who have done that, your primary citizenship is not this one, and for them it was not the Roman one. It is you are a citizen of heaven. And I'd like to explain three conclusions about this really quick, and then we'll land the plane. Conclusion number one, as citizens of heaven, we have a new identity. This identity is not defined by ethnicity, by color, by educational attainment, by financial status. Your identity, each one of you, are identified if you've said yes to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, whether you're a very mature Christian or just a recent convert to the ways of Christ, you have a new identity, and your identity, Paul will say in many other places, is in Christ. You are no longer defined by that past that you cannot change or that future that you do not know. You are defined by being a child of God, and your identity is that you have a new identity in Christ, you are a child of Christ. This is hopeful news for us today. There are many people that need to know this good news of the gospel, that they can have a new identity, the identity that is in Jesus, not defined by what the things that the world would like to define us by, to give us status or, or significance, but rather the true meaningful one of identity that we are a new creation in Christ. But this also, this gift from the Lord also becomes our task. His gifts become our task. It also invites us to be countercultural. It invites us to be countercultural into the idols of our community and our society and our culture. We need to find those things that are uh, maybe self-aggrandizement or, or uh, thinking that we can attain a certain educational level and that's what gives us status or that because we're living in a certain community, that that's what gives us status. All that, Paul would say, he would count as rubbish. It is being in Christ, but it's an invitation to be also countercultural against the idols of our time. The world lately is giving us these binaries. I don't know if you've noticed. Mask, no mask. Vaccine, no vaccine. This party, that party. This leader, that leader. And we're falling into the trap, hook, line, and sinker, working with the binaries that the world offers instead of offering a third way, the way of Christ, and saying, wait a minute, there are things here I don't like, and there are here things I don't like, but it's not about my preference. It's about loving my neighbor even when I disagree with her. It's about loving that other one even when I'm not with them because I am a new creature in Christ and I need to be an emissary of love, of faith, and of hope to that other rather than all of us who think the same way come and stay in our comfortable little bubble over here. We are called like Paul to be missionaries into the uncomfortable world that does not believe in Christ. And for that, we're only going to be able to do it with the weapons of faith, of hope, and of love. These are the tools of the kingdom. Number two, not only are we citizens, do we have a new identity, but we are also having a new, we form part of a new community. Just like we shared about our sister who had to raise that child in a very difficult circumstance in Venezuela, 
She won't have to raise that child alone. She raises that child with a new community, a community that works together. And you have in New Testament, and Paul will write to that too, all the one another passages. Forgive one another. Care for one another. Carry one another's burdens. This is what it's like to be in that new identity. It also is an invitation to a new community. You have more in common with a person who is in Christ in Kenya than you do with your neighbor across the street who rejects and hates everything of the kingdom. You still have to love that neighbor. You have to still engage that neighbor. But you have more in common with that other one because that's part of your community. You have a new citizenship defined not by passport, not by uh, where you were born, but because you were born of the Spirit. That's where your true passport comes from. When you are born of the Spirit, you get the passport of heaven. The last point is the most difficult one. Not only do we have a new identity, not only do we have a new community, but we also have a new vocation. And I'd like to finish with this point. A new vocation includes, like Paul, to engage the world with the message of the gospel. Not only by proclaiming it, but also by being it. You don't just go to church. You are the church. We need to get a paradigm shift and change the chip in our minds and in our hearts and realize it's not about Sunday morning and Wednesday night or a small group Bible study only. That's great. But where do we spend more time? At work, on, on, on the soccer field, at the college, at the university, at the party with my friends. All those things have to fall under the lordship of Christ and reclaim them for its rightful owner, Jesus Many people act and live as if this world became, belongs to the devil. And there are one or two passages that would seem to indicate, but they forget to look at the full arc of Scripture. Creation, it is good. It is created by God. He owns it. The fall, it's all distorted. St. Augustine called sin disordered love. We're made for love, but we've disordered it. And to then go into redemption is to reorder that according to the new creation that Christ has established on the cross and in the power of the resurrection. But the last one we hardly ever hear about, new creation. Creation, fall. Redemption, new creation. Please repeat with me. Creation, creation. Fall. fall. Redemption, redemption. New, creation. new creation. We are a new creation. And you know what? Your citizenship in heaven, and this is my final point, I promise. When the pastor says three times, this is my last point, the third time you can believe him. Okay. So. When we say you're a citizen in heaven, that you don't have to wait till you die to go to heaven. You are a citizen of heaven already now, but you're on earth. Many of us are in a hurry to get to heaven and we forget that we are called by the same one that wrote that letter to Philippians. We are called ambassadors of Christ. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents the interests of one nation to another nation. We represent the citizenship of heaven, where? To earth. Do they need more faith, hope, and love in heaven? No. Where do we need more faith, hope, and love? 
So why are we in a hurry to go the other way? It's like when, we, when I went for my uh, 25th anniversary with my beautiful wife, Angela, to Ireland. We said, let's save up our money and we'll do a big trip to Ireland. And we rented a little car and everything's going great. But I did, it went pretty good. But in two, two, two times I made the mistake because they drive on the other side of the road. And once I remember just, I'm going real good, you know, driving on the other side. And then all of a sudden I turned what seemed to me normal. I turned this way and all the cars are coming against me. And I go, woo and quickly made a correction. It seems to me the, that the evangelical church sometimes in North America is in a hurry to go in the wrong direction. That means we think it's about going to heaven. I know a professor who will offer money to someone who shows him in scripture that the purpose of the righteous, the purpose of the Christian life is to go to heaven. There's no passage for that. It's rather the good news is that heaven came to us in Jesus Christ and that the spirit has been poured out to us on earth to empower us to be ambassadors of Christ into all vocations and walks of life on the sports field, in the boardroom, in the bedroom, in the kitchen, in all places, the, 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 the seniority and the, and the governance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? And someday heaven is coming down in its fullness in Jesus Christ. Don't worry. My grandma died. Maybe your grandma died. I believe she's with the Lord. That brings us great comfort. But the end of the game is that we shall all be reunited. Isaiah 65, last homework. Isaiah 65, Revelation 21. Read it in one sitting. When I did that for the first time, I could not believe it. If you don't believe Isaiah, believe John. They both say, behold, I see a new heaven and a new earth. Your vocation, my vocation as the church corporately is to be sent into the world as emissaries of the heavenly citizenship that we already have. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we all say, amen. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for giving us your word. Thank you that the Apostle Paul was converted by your power of the gospel. Thank you that we now know because of what he wrote, inspired by the Spirit, that we are citizens of heaven. Help us to wear that citizenship proudly, but also to wear it with humility and with a spirit of service to the world. For we want everything that we do, Lord, to be for your glory. We want it to be for the edification of the church, your body, and we want it to be for the good of the world. Send us from this place, Lord, into our communities, into our places of work, into our vocations, into our places of play, into our places of study, as ambassadors of the King, as those reclaiming this world for Jesus Christ, its rightful owner. And we will give you, Lord, as you empower us with gifts and strength, we will give you all the honor and all the glory, because yours is the kingdom. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.